Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, great. So welcome to another um, episode of Latte with Lawyer. And uh, this is Jonathan Brickman. I'm your host. And today I have Chris Wright. And I'm going to make sure I pronounce the name of your firm correctly. Harris, Wiltshire, and Granis. Is that, that right? right? Yep. Excellent. Okay, welcome to the show. So uh, th- just to keep with the theme of the show here, I've got to ask you, what's your favorite morning beverage of choice? To get yeah. um, a black coffee, uh, strong. Um, uh, Sumatra is my favorite. Uh, French roast is good. Um, actually... Got some going right now. Excellent. Wow, it's late in the day and you're already drinking coffee. You told me you drink lots of coffee. I do. Yeah, it becomes a uh, habit, doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I think when I first got to my first uh, real like office job and they did, I grew up drinking tea in our family and they didn't have that. It was much easier just to pour the coffee. I got hooked on that too. And now it's like, if, if there's coffee, I'm drinking it throughout mm-hmm. the day. Well, I used to put cream and sugar in it and stuff like that, but I, uh, I, I went to strong black coffee quite a few decades ago. So you became efficient before your time, right? It's like you know, <laughs> I guess that's right. <laughs> it's going straight to the uh, the caffeine. Don't dilute it at all. Okay. So uh, it, it looks so it looks like you've got an interesting career. You're working on some pretty uh, high profile things, and you're um, I don't know much about. Uh, being an appellate law lawyer. So I want to hear about that. And uh, you also do communications law. So tell us about what you do and what, what your clients look like. Sure. Well, so, you know, as you say, I'm an appellate lawyer and a communications lawyer, but I, I, I thought if it's okay, I'd start by uh, uh, saying that when I was in law school, uh, I had no idea I wanted to do either. Um, I've spent almost, I ended up, I spent almost 20 years working for the federal government and, um, and most of the rest, the last 21, working for a, a law firm, Harris, Wiltshire, and Grannis, as, as you mentioned. But, um, you know, in law school, I also was skeptical that I'd enjoy working for a law firm and had no idea that, that doing things for the um, federal government could be interesting. But anyway, in in retrospect, in, in thinking about it in preparation for this podcast, I, I uh, it, my career seems to make more sense than it than it did at the time. And, and I think it's basically because I tried to figure out what I liked and adjusted as I went along. And so there are kind of five segments. I spent two years as an appellate law clerk and sort of liking that. I went as an associate at a law firm for two years mainly because I'd seen um, a, a number of lawyers from that firm in action in court. And I thought, well, I could probably learn something about appellate law from them. And then I had the opportunity to go to the Solicitor General's office uh, and I ended up spending nine years there because, you know, um, arguing cases in the Supreme Court is a gas. And, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, the one place you can be sure you're doing it. Then by happenstance, I spent, I got the opportunity to spend seven years at the, at the Federal Communications Commission. 
and I'd, I'd only known a little bit about communications law before that, but I, I, I thought it was very interesting. And so I took that opportunity. And then, um, then really uh, uh, Bush v. Gore came along and it was time for me to leave the FCC. And, um, and my friends, uh, uh, Scott Harris, Bill Wilkshire, and Mark Granis had, had hung out a, a shingle successfully about three years prior to that. And so, um, and, and so I came here. Oh, I so that, that's, that's the overview. So what is an, to tell everybody, because I'm not sure everyone knows, but what does an appellate lawyer do versus someone who's not an appellate lawyer? Right. So we argue cases in the appellate court. So uh, I've argued more than 25 cases in the Supreme Court. I've argued about 25 cases in the D.C. Circuit, and I've argued close to 20 cases in the other federal courts of appeals, the the First Circuit, et cetera. And, and uh, so I think everybody knows you have a Supreme Court and under that you have these different federal courts of appeals like the DC Circuit and the other circuits. And then under that you have um, trial courts uh, on the one hand, um, but you also have federal agencies like the Federal Communications Commission who issue a lot of decisions and their decisions get challenged immediately in the appellate courts. You, you, if you're unhappy with what the uh, uh, FCC does, and somebody almost always is, at least in important cases, uh, thank goodness from my perspective, um, uh, they, they go, they, they file in the, in the Court of Appeals. Uh, the DC Circuit hears most, more cases than, than any other circuit um, uh, there, you, you know, with respect to appeals from from agencies, so uh, so I've spent a lot of time there uh, over the last uh, <laughs> last few decades now. Interesting. Um, so I would imagine you probably have something to say about uh, the recent activity with Twitter and Elon Musk. I would imagine that's going to make its way into the appellate courts. Um, you know, I, yeah, I I uh, I very much uh, uh, welcome the opportunity to be a part of that uh, because I no I do think it's a fascinating issue and um, and there is a provision of the Communications Act actually section two thirty that um, plays an important part in sort of um, protecting platforms from from lawsuits. Um, but also giving them an opportunity to um, to moderate their 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 uh, material and you know make their own decisions in some ways the way a, a newspaper or a broadcaster would about what what gets carried, um, but without as much threat of litigation. Uh, uh, you, you know. A, the, the, the theme of Section 230 is to, is to allow as much free expression as possible and not to make the uh, operator moderate it, but to encourage them to do it. Right. Well, that is a central issue, right? It's like freedom of speech, speech versus, you know, this private platform that can set the wrong rules, right? Yeah, so Section 230 was enacted as part of the 1996 Telecom Act, which uh, I, I was uh, 
I was uh, at the FCC at the time, and, and so I um, I got a crash course in, um, in in the new developments, and and you know some parts of the law were terrific, and some parts weren't. But I actually I actually think Congress got that right um, that you wanted to try to allow as much free speech as possible. Uh, you know, without holding the companies uh, liable or having them, you know, sued all the time, uh, but while still giving them the opportunity, uh, you, you know, the opportunity to kick people off the platform if, if they're if they're they're abusing it, you know, just the way a, a broadcaster could say I'm not running your show, or a newspaper could say I'm not running your article. Um, not sure we found the right balance in practice yet, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, sure. It's interesting, though. It makes for an interesting uh, debate, that's for sure. Yep. Some high-profile cases, these young entrepreneurs, Mark Zuckerberg, and, and now we get uh, Mr. Musk here. Going to be right, at the, right in the middle of it. Um. <laughs> I can see you're scratching your head over it because it's not an easy one. It's a, these are certainly tough, tough, tough issues that have a lot of uh, impact on society. No, and, and just, you know, um, sort of the, the, uh, uh, the art of trying to be an appellate lawyer and especially in the communications space is, um, is, is a lot of fun and interesting and challenging because you know, you have three generalist judges on the Court of Appeals hearing your case. And they're, you know, they're, they're very smart and, and uh, experienced lawyers. Um, but a lot of the cases involve sort of technical issues um, and sort of background issues uh, about sort of, you know, in that sort of case, how did, how did, uh, how did the problem develop and what were Congress's goals in, in adopting Section 230 and how have the lower courts uh, interpreted it? So there's, um, it, it, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge to get the court to sometimes understand uh, the case, especially when it's even more technical than that. But, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's fun to, try to do that and um and of course you have to try to do it in a persuasive way that helps the court helps lead the court to the position that that you know what you're arguing for your client is um is 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 the right way um, for the court to go right so your day your clients are who are your clients give me who are you working for yeah so our 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 firm, you know, I should say our firm has grown since I started, and we now have energy law and, and ethics practices and, and, a, and a good trial court practice. But um, but we started with a focus on on communications, and we've um, and, and and we've continued to do an awful lot of that. Um, but it's been a lot of you know just a, a broad group. Uh, we we do a lot of we've always done a lot of work for wireless companies, including Sprint and T-Mobile, and we do a lot of, of work for high tech companies, and we do um, 
a lot of work for some smaller companies. Uh, I have a client called Sorensen Communications, which provides a video relay service for deaf people and caption telephone service for hard of hearing people. And um, I'm sort of proud to have been part of their team now for, for over a decade. Um, oh, but, but maybe if, uh, if I, I can give you an example of some of the challenge here, um, you know, sort of the, the last case I've argued um, um, really does kind of illustrate some of the some of the things that are in our, our wheelhouse, but make it make it hard to uh, make it make it challenging to, to be an appellate lawyer in the communications issue. So so this was a case that involved Wi-Fi and making more spectrum available for use in Wi-Fi. And my, um, my colleagues at the firm, uh, including Paul Margie, um, helped persuade the FCC uh, to, to create uh, more opportunity for Wi-Fi. You may know that for decades, you've, you've been able to operate at the 2.4 or the five gigahertz right. band, uh, but you probably also know that they've gotten more congested over time. And anyway, in this in this rulemaking, um, the FCC decided to, um, to make more spectrum available in the six gigahertz band. And the um, and, and actually, uh, this is now coming online, and there'll be uh, there, there'll be twice as much spectrum available there as ah, in interesting. the other bands put together. So I I think it's a really, um, uh, you know, a, a good move by the FCC, but like all FCC, important FCC decisions, this was immediately challenged in court by, um, by the case called AT&T versus FCC. AT&T is one of the companies that um, uh, has used the six gigahertz band for other purposes. And it said that allowing Wi-Fi use there would would uh, cause interference with its transmissions, ah. and so um, you know, uh, fortunately, after uh, uh, a couple of decades of work, I so, I sort of understand the the technical aspects of this, but it's um, it's really an engineering problem, and at the at the court of appeals, uh, you end up uh, uh, with some uh, nice technical issues and and here um it was a virtual oral argument um you know which i've now done a couple but um, um judge tato was a presiding judge on the panel and his his problem was the following he he um the FCC had concluded, and as as my as my clients had explained, that the reason there one of the key reasons there wouldn't be interference was that while you may perceive your router as sort of being always on and always transmitting, uh, on average they only transmit zero point four percent of the time, and um, and so that. That fact uh, uh, helps explain why it's very unlikely that there would be harmful interference to um, uh, companies like AT&T. And, and as, as I say, uh, uh, Judge Tatel basically said, well, you know, kind of how, how could that be? Um, and um, uh, 
So I, uh, at, the, at, the, <laughs> at the oral argument, I, I said, uh, and I quote, because it appears in the court's opinion, that uh, routers, quote, transmit huge amounts of data in really tiny bursts, unquote. Now that wasn't the most elegant way to say it, but um, but it did the, did the job. It kind of exemplifies how you've you've kind of got to make you know what can be difficult technical issues um, accessible to to generalist judges. And so I'm I'm proud that Judge Tatum quoted me, even if it's even if I'm saying that those bursts are really tiny. But, uh, you know, uh, well, okay. actually, you make a good point there because, uh, you know, most of these things are extremely complicated and uh, you really have to uh, sort of condense them down to like simple language so people can understand them that don't have the same background. So I, I, I agree with you. That's a right. challenge. And, and, you know, of course, the judges are very expert on the relevant um, uh, precedent and administrative practice and that sort of thing. But but you always come in, or you should always come in, knowing more about the facts of your case than they do, and 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 should have spent a lot of time with your colleagues and and doing moot courts and figuring out, you know, what somebody who's less involved in the case than you um, um, thinks about it. Yeah. So long and short, it six G is going to open up and create more bandwidth for the general public. Now that's that's coming. Right, right. So, at, well, there, there, there are products on the market. Uh, uh, you know, look for that little FCC seal on the on the back of your of your router or your Wi-Fi device, and, and it'll probably tell you uh, it'll probably tell you it works on all three bands. Uh, uh, but make sure make sure it's got the six 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 gigahertz band too. Uh, so I'll be getting a new router pretty soon from Xfinity. Is what you're telling me? <laughs> uh, good. Um, if I could take the opportunity to say a couple words about non-communication stuff we've we've done at the, at at the firm, I'm I'm very proud of our uh, pro bono amicus briefs, uh, of which we filed many, um, including in the Supreme Court. Um, uh, one set of briefs uh, involved the uh, uh, the Obamacare cases, the the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, and um, we had the opportunity to represent uh, Nancy Pelosi and about 20 other um, Democratic congressmen and senators in, in, in the first round. And, um, you know, as you may recall, Chief Justice Roberts sort of cast the, the critical yes. vote there upholding the Affordable Care Act, but doing it under the tax clause uh, rather than the commerce clause. And let me say that like, um, a lot of other uh, people who filed briefs, we we did emphasize the Commerce Clause argument, but after sort of considerable internal discussion, we decided we would advance the Tax Clause argument ourselves uh, as well. And and um, you know, in retrospect, I'm 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 glad we did. Um, so we we also. Um, uh, filed a brief in the same-sex marriage case that I that I think was um, uh, uh, helpful uh, to the court. Uh, so, in that case, we we represented uh, Professor Larry Tribe and and Professor um, um, Mike Dorf, um, and um, and um, Pro Professor Tribe had developed an argument that was. Um, 
primarily substantive due process with an equal protection twist is how I think of it. But um, uh, Professor Tribe had developed this, this approach and, and in some ways it was based on Loving v. Virginia, the case where the Supreme Court had said that there's a constitutional right to interracial marriage. And um, anyway, the way we approached the case was sort of due process first. Is the right to marry a fundamental right? And um, and Justice Kennedy, uh, you know, writing the court's opinion, did that too and addressed that first and decided it it is. And then the second question is uh, sort of the 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 equal protection component. So once you decide something's a, a fundamental right. Is there a reason to deny that right or benefit to the group in question? And Justice Kennedy went went along and uh, and and decided that it was. And and so we, um, um, you know, uh, we, we're very proud that he followed the the uh, approach that uh, uh, Professor Tribe had, had uh, developed, and we'd uh, advanced in our in our uh, amicus brief to the court. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I was looking at your background. So I, I was wondering if you went to Harvard Law School, if he was your professor, but you did not. You went to undergrad there and you went to Stanford Law School. Is that right? Right, right, right. Um, and, you know, let me say sort, sort of I, uh, I, I started by saying I went to law school, not really knowing what I was going to do. But um, uh, I, I vividly remember uh, Professor Tom Gray uh, describing um, early in my time at Stanford that um, uh, describing clerking for for Justice Marshall, which he had done just a couple of years before that. And I I I really you know I I think as lawyers we kind of take clerking for granted, but it's it's really quite a unique thing where people right out of law school um, you know work for these judges uh, who, you know, wield a lot of power and, you know, it's, there's not, there's not a whole lot of people in between. I mean, when I was general counsel at the, at the FCC, you know, there were 65 mostly very experienced lawyers on the staff. And here, uh, uh, you know, a court of appeals judge has three young lawyers and, uh, and, and, you know, the chief justice has, four relatively young lawyers working for him. And, you know, you, you see the judge or the justice every day and, and you work closely with them. And that just sounded like an opportunity that was kind of too good to be true. And, and that's sort of how I got my foot into the appellate door because, you know, you, you then see a lot of oral arguments, you read a lot of briefs, and I at least had the reaction that, yeah, gee, I, I'd like to do that. I, I think I could try to do that. So um, like I say, that, that, that led me to go to the now, um, to Shea and Gardner, which is uh, now been swallowed by a large firm. But, um, um, you know, and then I, because of, because of that, I got the opportunity to, uh, uh, to go to the Solicitor General's office. Um, you know, and in fact, I, was, I wasn't looking for a job, but one of my, uh, one of my friends who was at clerk for Justice Blackman at the same time I was clerking had 
called me up and said he'd, he'd taken a job at the SG's office and uh, gee, there's uh, another opening um, encouraged me to apply. So, uh, you know, that just seemed like another opportunity and, uh, you know, that you, as I said, you don't get anywhere else. And so um, I, I stayed there for quite a while, um, just starting on different cases. <clears throat> Let me ask you, let me just take you back a little bit. I mean, so, I mean, I, you mentioned that you were from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. How did you become a lawyer? How did you get interested in that? Well, I got to admit, I sort of resisted it for a little while. Um, I have two older brothers who are lawyers. Um, okay. Maybe I thought I ought to try something different. And, you know, I, and I really wasn't, sure from my experience you know uh, i i did know a, a few lawyers who worked for bethlehem steel and it didn't sound terribly exciting to me i, I you know I, I was young um but uh, so I, I actually got a, a a master's degree in educational research and development at berkeley and worked there at something called the teaching innovation and evaluation services and um you know was hoping to try to make our educational system better than it is, but I, I, um, I changed course and and um, decided to go to law school. And uh, you know, it, for me, that was clearly the right choice, and I'm and I'm glad I did it. But I, again, I have to say, uh, kind of never had a master plan. I certainly didn't have one that came I, I came in involving appellate law or communications law and to the extent I have any advice to give to younger lawyers I I do think um, I do think you should realize you can't really know what you're going to do the rest of your career when you start um, but if you try different things and see what you like and, and keep trying to develop some sort of skill uh, you know that'll make you useful um, then that's the, the 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 best way to go. Yeah. If I if I can tell an anecdote about uh, uh, communications law, um, this will upset my son, who's now <laughs> thirty two. But um, so my my wife uh, uh, Becky Troth is also a lawyer, and she's done a lot of great public interest stuff. But uh, so in nineteen ninety four, I'm working at the FCC. And Becky is in the Civil Rights Division uh, at the Justice Department. And four-year-old David walks up to her and says, Daddy's job is more important than your job because he fixes telephones and televisions. <laughs> and um, Becky told me her first impulse was to say, your dad could fix a telephone or a television. Life depended on it, which would be true. But instead, she... Um, that she said, well, my job is to try to make, make sure people are treated fairly. And four-year-old David said, telephones and televisions are more important. Um, you know, well, it, it is true that they have a great impact on that's us. That's very uh, funny. Well, that's the perspective of a, of a child, right? Yeah, yeah. And so is your son a lawyer now? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a, he's in the video field. So no one followed in the footsteps of uh, the parents. Nope, nope, nope. But 
that's the way it goes. They, they, they have to make their own choices and, yeah. and they're doing well. Yeah, so. that's interesting. Yeah, my, my uh, I come from a family of doctors and nobody wanted to follow that path either. So either go that direction or you totally go the opposite, I suppose. <clears throat> but you're right. I mean, I, the, the, you made a comment about how it, it didn't seem to make sense, but when you look backwards, it makes sense, which is very true. Um, everything sort of seems to make sense if when you look at it in reverse. When you're going through it, it seems like you take you have this very crooked path. We're jumping around, but usually you follow your instincts, and right there's a there's a natural uh, course if you sort of allow it to happen. Yeah, and you know, look at uh, obviously for me, three years in, in the educational evaluator turns out in retrospect not to have made sense. It was a wrong turn, but so uh, you know, you have to you have to recognize that too. Um, but uh, you, you know, I, I guess I I was like lucky to figure out that I um, that I uh, liked appellate work, and you know, and then. Um, uh, I, I had done a couple of, um, communications cases at the uh, solicitor general's office. So, um, uh, so I, so I knew a little bit about what I was getting into at the, uh, at the FCC, although that move was largely involved a lot of happenstance too. Uh, so November of 93. I was invited to a bar mitzvah for the son of somebody who I, one of my co-clerks. And um, also there was uh, <clears throat> Reed Hunt, who um, uh, who had been confirmed as chairman of the FCC the day before. And so it's kind of a Washington thing. We got to talking and um, uh, he invited me um, come over to the FCC where among other people, I met Bill Kennard, who Reed had um, already hired as general counsel and who knew a lot about um, communications law, but had relatively little appellate experience. So I had something to offer and I ended up coming in as a deputy general counsel, uh, focusing on the appellate stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the 1996 Telecom Act got passed and that gave everybody a crash course in, in new law. And um, Reed left in 97 and, and, and Bill became chairman and was kind enough to make me general counsel, even though I had um, basically no political clout uh, or anything. But so that, that was a, a, you know, very nice, a very nice thing uh, he, he did for me. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. So let me ask you a question. Um, given the, uh, the uh, explosion, I'll say, of technology in the legal space, what's your view on that? And does your firm use any legal tech platforms to help your practice? And do you embrace it? Um, so my colleagues embrace it. Um, at the trial level, um, we have all kinds of stuff, um, and uh, given my practice, um, I don't really know much about it. But um, uh, you, you know, I, I learned a bit of 
via osmosis about all the all the things that the new technology can do when you're trying to search documents and and and, and doing other things <clears throat> and um, and i know you do some interesting work uh, focused more on trial courts um, it has occurred to me that sort of our old-fashioned practice of doing moot courts uh, before appellate cases is is a bit like what you do, although yeah. I, don't, I don't know of anybody who's who's uh, who's tried to involve um, uh, technology uh, uh, in that. But uh, you, you know, I um, I co-teach the uh, DC bars. Um, a CLE course on on um, oral arguments, and I always encourage people to do moot courts, but I especially urge them to do it using lawyers who are more like the judges, who are not immersed in the case, who are not sold on their position, and come in come in sort sort of more fresh, uh, and and get their take on the on the case and um, and then you know reshape your argument with what you can you can learn from them so um, well I, I, I guess this is old-fashioned technology but uh, um, but actually when Ken Starr was solicitor general and and John Roberts was deputy solicitor general um, I, when I was in the solicitor general's office um, um, Ken had been uh, um, a court of appeals judge, and he 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 definitely believed that oral argument was more important than lawyers sometimes thought. And anyway, he bought us video equipment and uh, uh, encouraged us all to to videotape our oral uh, arguments yeah. and and look at them closely. And 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 I did that, and I can't say I do that too often anymore, but it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a somewhat painful experience to watch yourself and, and listen to yourself. And, and I, I hope can learn some things about it. Um, I, got, uh, I got criticized in a DC circuit case once by a judge for, um, for smiling too much and, and, and then for frowning. Um, it was it was kind of strange, but um, uh, I was I was I was not at the podium. I was watching my opponent, and and, the, and I guess I was sort of while I was smiling. According to the judge, he stopped smiling. Uh, so then I tried very hard not to smile. And, well, we stop frowning. <laughs> anyway, we won the case, so I it didn't necessarily matter. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, that is interesting. I mean, I guess the the judges do have a lot of power, and they can really sort of control the uh, the mood, right, of the courtroom. Yeah. So, so you, you know, it, it, in the appellate court, of course, though, there's always more than one judge. Um, so. Um, you know, I don't know whether that makes them sort of less likely than trial judges to feel like they're in control. But, but of course, they're in control compared to you. Right. Um, and I, I um, you, you know, I've almost always had um, uh, excellent experiences. The, um, 
you know, judges might sometimes be too conservative for my taste or whatever, but, but they're, they're always, um, you know, they're always trying to understand the case and do the best job they can um, to figure it out and write an opinion that, that, that makes sense. Um, um, you know, like I say, they may come in with certain preconceptions that sort of push them one way or another, um, but, um, but they're, they're really not up there to uh, 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 give you a hard time or whatever. I, I, I guess I also advise uh, um, when I um, teach my uh, oral argument class that one of the best things you can do is to actually do moot courts for other lawyers and think about them as if you're actually a judge and have to cast a vote. Um, shortly after the oral argument, which is, you know, which is how it generally works. The Court of Appeals judges hear a bunch of arguments and they go back into what they call the conference and they vote and they have signed the opinion and sometimes that changes, but most of the time it doesn't change. And, and so, you know, the last thing they hear about the case before they decide it is, is, is listen to you uh, and, and, and read your briefs. And, so I sort of say if if you're if you're pretending that you're actually a judge as opposed to somebody who's got to give the person a hard time, um, you know I constantly get annoyed by these briefs where people seem to be trying to hide the ball rather than clearly tell me what's going on for better or worse, and 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 similarly, um, you know. When you're doing your your court, well, why won't the person just give yes or no answers to the extent they possibly can, or at least say yes, but or yes, if I understand this, and uh, and if I ask a hypothetical case, uh, you know, I don't need to be told that that's not this case because uh, it's a hypothetical. Uh, right. But but please answer it if you. If you can't answer my hypothetical uh, in a sensible way, that suggests that your your you know your position doesn't make sense. It's it was just crafted to win this case, and and um, and anyway, I think that if you sort of think you know if you look if you do the moots that way, it, it it helps it helps reinforce the idea of you know being concise and straightforward, both in your briefing and in your oral arguments. Yeah. Well, this is not certainly not meant to be any kind of, uh, you know, promotion for what we're doing, but that's the whole thrust of the piece of software that we have, right, is to gather these authentic insights, right? So it's not bias. Anyway. There's a lot of bias, right, when you're what you were describing. And uh, but the whole purpose of whether you're doing a mood coup, a court or moot trial or a focus group or just in front of something, you want to get a real authentic, unfiltered response. So you know what if what you're presenting actually is resonating the way you want it to, right? And that's hard to do when you're relying on humans to. Yeah, and 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 and, and look at I, I think I have. I think it's a lot easier to have insight into what appellate judges uh, are likely to be thinking than it is. Right, but cross sample of humanity. Yes. So, 
Exactly. <laughs> so your work's needed. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, listen, on that note, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. This has been really interesting. You certainly educated me quite a bit. Um, and it sounds like you're doing some really uh, good work. And uh, that's great to hear. Um, but if someone wants to reach you, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, you know, like all lawyers, we have a website, uh, you know, Harris Wilkshire and Granis, uh, hwglaw.com. And uh, you can find me there. You can find my phone number. You can find my email address, cwright at hwglaw.com. And, um, and so thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So you're using technology. You just said, look at the website. There you go. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, listen, thanks again. This has uh, been Chris Wright with... Um, and again, I'm going to struggle to say it again, but um, uh, Wiltshire, let's see, Here, Harris, Harris Wiltshire, Wiltshire. Grannis. Okay, HWG, which is why you right. have it on your website. Um, and this, this has been sponsored by Emotion Track, and we use artificial intelligence mm -hmm. to gather nonverbal communication insights used for mediation and trials. Thank you very much again, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you.